So let's get started. I'm going to be giving a talk on recruitment and retention in hard mode, that is doing inclusivity. Um, so getting people who are not normally in your movement into your movement is hard to do, especially if the people you're trying to get in are not very much like the people who are currently in your movement. It's a really hard problem. I spent this summer working for CEA trying to figure out how to fix it using research and stuff people have tested. Um, so I'm going to be talking about that. But because I'm going to be talking about a lot of things very quickly in this 20-minute talk, there's also an open Google Doc that you can click on where you can see where I'm pulling my stuff from. It has a bunch of links and sources. Um, so with that, let's get started. Before I talk about that, I'm going to talk about social media. Um, specifically, this app called Beam. It came out earlier this year. Um, and the goal is to have people engage more authentically with each other. So when you post a picture on Facebook, you get to choose the filter. You get to decide which of the 10 pictures you took was the right one. Beam tries to disrupt this. I promise I'm not a representative from the company. Basically, what you do is you take the phone, you stick the phone in front of you, and you press it to your chest tightly. And like, now everyone to try this. You need to use, you have to have an iPhone to actually make this work, but we'll all pretend you all have iPhones. Specifically, newer iPhones that have the body sensor in it. You're going to have to press it flat to your chest, and it needs to be completely flat, such that you're covering up a sensor that's in the iPhone. And it also has to be pressed, like, basically in the center of your body, so it's like touching your heart. Remember, you're trying to project forwards. And what it's going to do, in theory, is as soon as you've got the thing covered and it's flat, so perpendicular to the floor, um, it would then start recording. It would record for four seconds, and then it would immediately upload those four seconds of recording to the cloud. Um, but the important thing is you want to like be recording what's in front of you, and you want to be recording basically at face, like face level to the next person. So you need not to be like pointing up or whatever, and it has to be completely flat. So if you can all try this. So there's an interesting problem you might have. Uh, the hint for this problem is that the average American woman is a 34C, which makes it very, very, very hard to get a phone flat on your chest. Um, so doing this becomes much trickier when you have a variety of people trying to do it. Um, in fact, it leads to headlines like this. Um, this headline was originally published on Medium, but got mentioned in Wired, which is maybe not the best first start. Um, but I did also want to flag that I don't think anyone was trying to make an app that cut out 51% of the adult population from using. That's really not how social media works. Um, in fact, I bet everyone here was not trying to do anything wrong. I think that there was probably just this case. In fact, the creator of the app pictured there um, says that he had his sister try it. But it takes a variety of people to catch that. I can use Beam in theory, though I have not tested this. It takes an invite. Um, but some people can't. Specifically, some women can't. Um, so what I'm saying is things are very hard to do inclusivity-wise, but that having a variety of people often helps. Um, often people at this point get nervous about how to make diversity happen. It's a scary topic. Lots of people who actually really, really do care about diversity are not sure what to do, but they're pretty sure that it's very stressful. Um, so I just wanted to clear up what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about diversity. I have three premises. The first is that effective altruism will probably be better if we have a variety of high-quality people in the ranks. You avoid the problems of having all of the same people who agree, there are lots of interesting studies about how diversity encourages debate and argument, and people then don't end up sort of following the crowd. It's pretty awesome. Um, also, public conflicts and controversies are really bad for social movements. Amanda talked a little bit about Elevatorgate. I joined the atheist movement the day Elevatorgate happened. It was not a great time. Uh, I gave a version of this talk uh, last year. It had been four years since Elevatorgate, and at that time, the media was still talking about it. Every time there was an article about the movement, 
They mentioned a little bit about the experience of women in the movement and how it hadn't been so great. That's four years of every headline having a little bit of a mention about how that movement wasn't so welcoming or how it used to not be so welcoming but people were working on it. Still not a great time. In fact, a friend of mine asked some atheist movement leaders, like, how much time do you think you spent uh, when the crisis was, like, first happening, when this big conflict and public controversy was happening? And they estimated that, like, during the month where it was a really big deal, they were spending about 50% of their time working on it. That's a lot of time. That's like a good chunk of what you're doing every day, PR-wise, for a good section of like your whole year working. And then four years of like hearing about in the press frequently. That's a lot. So avoiding public conflicts and controversies about diversity is a really awesome thing to do. Um, and attentions aside, being perceived as unwelcoming is just not great for getting people to join your social movement, specifically if you're about convincing people that the thing you're doing is something they should do too. Um, I know that as a woman who is sometimes involved with EA things like this event, people do come up to me, specifically usually women, and ask if the movement is welcoming to women, like really frequently. I think it happened like six or seven times this summer. Um, so if that gives you a sense of like how much like people are trying to ask about like how is this movement, how is it doing on these issues, that's a sense. But there are also some problems that happen when people think about the idea of working on diversity. One big problem that is just quite hard to solve is the problem of inferential gaps. People in minority identities have the same experience they've always had. They're living their lives, and they're experiencing the same thing over and over. And people in majority identities, so more common identities within a social group, are definitely also experiencing the same thing over and over. And crossing those two, getting people to feel like they um, have the same knowledge base, is really hard to do. People in minorities often end up explaining their experience over and over and over again, because, of course, there are a few of them. Um, and people in majorities often haven't heard that explanation for the first time. So if you imagine person in the majority, A, hears from person in the minority, B, that something's happening, they might react with disbelief. It might surprise them. But a person in the minority has explained it like 15 times and is pretty sure that it's been happening for all of their life, and they're not so enthused about like making sure that this gets communicated in a friendly way. This just is a really hard problem. Um, and so I'm going to talk about how to try to fix it as part of this. Um, another problem is that the correct solution is often not obvious at all. Like, I'm pretty sure for the people who care about diversity, if they knew what the solution was, they would have gone and implemented it, and we would not be having this talk today. Um, but it's often quite hard to figure out what the correct solution is, and it often feels like there are a bunch of sort of correct solutions that might work, but also might backfire. Um, in fact, approximating the solution, trying, can often be seen as uh, doing something worse. I promise this is a scary part. I have solutions at the end. Um, in fact, everyone can be trying to be more inclusive. Everybody can be working on something, um, and they can take a step that sounds correct, and then just by being like slightly off, it can backfire a lot. Um, so one example of this is the University of Northern Georgia. The University of Northern Georgia has a 3% attendance of African Americans. That's really low for Northern Georgia, like quite low. Um, this is also not a great thing for them. They would like to be more diverse. They would like to be more welcoming. Uh, one of the ways to do that is to signal inclusivity by showing the fact that other people attend your school. This is a brochure from their prospective students. This is what they give out to all prospective students. So they want to show that, like, you too, person who's using this, who's not a white male, can come to the school. In fact, we pictured you here. So everyone tried to get a diverse picture. I think everyone's sort of noticing what's wrong with this diverse picture. Um, I'm pretty sure I took some time to, like, dig into this. Um, that this picture was picked up by like a student who was on work study. Like they probably weren't trying to make the university look terrible. I mean, work study jobs are like not fun, but they're not that bad. Um, the stock photographer, whose name was plastered 
all over the internet for like a month was probably not trying to make a picture that could be perceived as racist or sexist. Like it, it would be kind of an odd thing to be doing. He was not reachable for comment on any of the like 20 or 30 news articles written about this brochure. Um, but I think I would be charitable and assume that he was not trying to make something that would make prospective uh, people who see it feel bad. But if you look at it, it does in fact look like white men are winning and the black man is falling quite far behind and the woman is doing her best but not really keeping up um, in their representation of success. Um, and it leads to headlines like this. So when people see these things, honestly, they get quite scared about like taking a step that they think is in the right direction and that takes them way far away into HuffPost headlines that say that they're racist. Um, that's a really scary thing. In fact, someone I know called Jay has a great name for it, stolen and twisted slightly from quantum. Uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of ethics says that when you observe a problem or even interact with it just a little bit, you can now be blamed for it. So one thing that you might think about, something near and dear to our hearts, is conferences. People often talk about like the ratio of gendered speakers, so women speaking versus men speaking at conferences. Um, and it often sort of skews towards men. Um, and then people talk about, like, what would we want? Um, and if a conference has 10% women speakers one year and 20% women speakers the next year, there's often some pushback about, like, it's only 20%. Um, even ignoring the fact that it might have improved significantly. In fact, that was doubling. And so people can feel quite scared to make a slight change, even in pursuit of, like, the big change that everyone wants, for fear that they'll get pushed back for not doing it good enough. Um, so with all of that... My goal for this talk is to give some really concrete things you can do that are pretty low trade-off and that can decrease the fear of being punished for trying. So before we do that, I want to talk about recruitment versus retention. So there are some strategies that can get people to come join your stuff, and there are some strategies that can keep them around after they've joined. And it's important that you know which one is which when you're doing this, um, because when you get it wrong, if you're trying to do a strategy to get people to join, it's actually a strategy that's great for getting people to stay. You can have all sorts of problems. Um, so I'm going to give some descriptions of this. But I also want to flag that you want to have strategies to do both. If you have a lot of families coming to your events, um, but they only come once and they never come back, you still haven't sort of won in the like making sure you're inclusive to people with kids department there. Um, you're also like spending a lot of your mental time getting people to come and like getting none of the success. Um, so you want to have both of those. Um, so let's talk about the case of female role models for STEM. STEM is science, technology, math, and engineering. Except in the correct order that spells STEM. <laughs> so there's this question of female role models. Uh, so what gets women, young women specifically, interested in working in those fields? So they tried out having um, feminine-looking role models doing interesting science and math and like having a video and showing it to young women. When they showed it to young women, the young women were less interested in doing math. They rated a bunch of skills much lower, their math ability, their general ability, and their interest in science. So, like, not a great outcome for showing them role models doing science. Um, but then also, when young women in a different study were presented with nerdy models, they were also less interested in doing science. Um, which sounds like you can't win at all. But what it turns out is that there is a solution to that, but that also role models are really important once people are in the sciences. So if someone's joined a college and is studying science, specifically if a woman has joined a college and is studying science, having a female role model or mentor for her is one of the best predictors of how much she'll enjoy her career and how, much, how likely she is to stay in it. Uh, so important to make sure that you're deploying the role models for retention there, not recruitment. 
Um, another case is the case of special interest groups. Uh, so for instance, at Google, we have the Gaglers, um, which is the internal group of people who are uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered, but are also Google employees. It's quite successful, and it has its own Wikipedia page. Um, but it's a group of people who work at the company and are LGBT. So you might think that this is like a really awesome thing that would br uh, bring people in. But when you're recruiting people, you might not want to say, like, you should join our company and participate in this separate group over here. You want to give them the sense that they're part of the actual company, not that you're like bringing them in and then shunting them off to the, like, the special people over there. Um, special interest groups are really important to people a lot of the time. The gagglers are clearly going strong. Um, but you want to make sure that people feel as though they can be part of the broader movement, not just off in the special side group. Um, so you want to use that as a retention strategy. But let's also talk about other interventions you can do. So the name tag. Name tags are cheap. They cost like five bucks. I don't know how much a Sharpie costs, but I, you know, you're going to spend less than $2 on a Sharpie, and then, cool, you have an inclusivity action. Uh, so one of the great things about name tags is that it makes it much easier for people to go up to each other, because you don't have to do, like, tap, tap, what's your name, and then come up with, like, something to say after that. You can walk up, you can say, like, hey, Jane, tell me about this group. Or, like, hey, Jane, I don't think I've been here before. And you can start a conversation. Conversely, people who have already been in the group and walk up and talk to you if you're new, if they don't also have to figure out who you are. Um, people are not so great at going outside of their out-group, going outside of their in-group. Um, this is just a thing about how humans do. And one of the ways to break that down is to make it slightly easier, just even a little bit. Um, and so making it so that when new people show up, specifically if they're new people who aren't the same as everyone else who's usually there, um, this can make it just a little bit easier for people to go talk to them. Um, especially if they're feeling as though they're the only one of their particular identity. Um, an experience where someone shows up to a group where they're in the minority and then nobody talks to them is like probably not an experience they're going to be excited about repeating. And if you can decrease the chances of this, this would be awesome. Also, if you've been in this community, especially the Bay Area one, you might know that a lot of people in this community are face blind. Um, this also decreases the thing where either for face blind people or for people who are not like me who forget names, the thing where you like know you've seen that person before, maybe they were new like three months ago, and you know you should know their name, but you have no idea what their name is. Decreasing the thing where they like know you know them, but you're not talking to them, also great. So basic mode of name tags. At any public gathering, provide and require name tags for everyone. If there's a chance that someone in the group won't know everyone else in the group, have a name tag. One of the trade-offs is that it does feel a little bit more formal, like you don't put on name tags to hang out with your friends, um, but it does mean that people really do come in. Here's hard mode. Encourage people to write some of the following. Just pick one and ask everyone to do it. Their name plus, their pronouns, a new interest they have, a cool skill they're developing, or five words about the most recent thing they learned. You'll notice I limit it to five words. Putting a lot of text on a name tag is not a great idea. Encouraging people to stare at each other's chest does not work in inclusivity settings. Um, so really, you do want to limit it, but give them something to start a conversation once they've had a name. So this is the next one. Um, this one is a little bit more complicated. Um, but specifically, I want to talk about uh, the like little tasks. If you've had any meeting everywhere in Meetspace, you might have had like some mugs you had to pick up, or like some pillows you had to put back on a couch. Um, and it's often tricky to like specifically delegate that thing. And so a lot of the time, someone ends up like doing those tasks. And often that just sort of over time becomes the same person doing the same thing. Um, and in research, this generally tends to be women in the group who are doing it, like picking up the mugs or like putting stuff back. So my encouragement is for any group 
that has not hired an administrative assistant or a secretary or like appointed someone whose job it is where they chose to take this job, just like clean up after that or pick a restaurant or make sure that everyone knew where the event was happening, um, rotates around between who's doing that, um, such that it's a little bit easier for everyone to like feel as though they could opt in or opt out and that it's not a task that has sort of been assigned to them without their knowledge. Um, okay, but what if you're actively taking away someone's favorite thing? Uh, Julia Galef gave me permission to use her example. She really likes picking dinners for people. Like, she just likes finding restaurants for people. It is one of her favorite things. She would probably hate the thing I just described. Uh, she would rather just always pick the dinners out. Um, but a really good way to, like, sort of let someone say, like, that's actually the task I'd always love to do always is to set yourself a calendar reminder and, like, every six months be like, that thing you volunteered for that you said you were really excited about, still excited about it, still want to do it? and just make sure that they're still enjoying this task that they've sort of taken over ownership with. Four, um, tell people about your venue. I'm going to speed up just a little bit. This is something that people in this community are great about. So you want to tell people the address, but a lot of the times people are really great about also adding like dietary considerations. Like this restaurant is vegan and it's vegetarian, it has gluten-free options, and you can look at the menu here. This means that everyone can go to the restaurant. Um, or if they know that they can't go to the restaurant, They'll know ahead of time. They won't like show up and have to stare at the menu and decide to order like a small thing and then not be able to eat it. It avoids that all entirely. For a short version of this story, I was not 21 when I went to college, and I was where prohibition started, which meant that there were a lot of dinner places that I couldn't go into, even if I was just getting dinner, because I was under 21. They carted people at the door, not just to go to the bar, but just to sit down and eat. And so sometimes I would take public transit, I'd like ride it for an hour to meet people for a meetup, and they'd card me at the door. And I'd be like, oh, I guess I can't go in to this thing I was planning to go to. Like, get my way back on transportation and go home. And this was very sad. It was not very fun at all. Um, and if you can imagine that experience for a variety of people, particularly the variety of people you want to have coming in, there's an easy way to prevent that, which is giving them unambiguous information ahead of time. Even if the thing had been, for me, this restaurant is 21 and up, sorry, everybody, but we're going to be having it here, and like under-21s can't come in. That would have been great information for me to have because I would have never gotten on the train and gone to the place and then had to awkwardly leave after they carted me. And being carted when you're under 21 is just not fun. Uh, so you want to extend this to telling people more things about your venue. Uh, is it accessible for people with physical disabilities? You want to say something like, the venue is located on this floor. It has a ramp and it has an elevator. You can imagine that like some of these things will prevent some people from coming, but not entirely. People on crutches will probably want to know about the elevator they might be able to make it up to like three steps into the building, but if there are six flights after that, they won't be so pleased. People in a wheelchair, definitely going to want to know if there's a ramp or not. Those three steps are going to be the reason they can't come to your event. So just list it. Even if the thing you list is, this is on the sixth floor and unfortunately the elevator is broken this week, or unfortunately there is no elevator, better to give people a heads up now than have them expect that they can come to your event and feel as though you've sort of shut the door on them. Tell people about your venue and the changing stations. The women's bathroom has a changing station. Or there's a changing station like two floors down, um, and it should be unlocked, that sort of thing. Or unfortunately, no changing stations. I learned in the process of setting up for this uh, event that there's like a big pad that people can buy to lay their baby on to change them when there's no changing table. But it's super bulky, and it's not fun to bring. If you can give people a heads up about whether or not they should be bringing it, you will be saving them a lot of inconvenience. Just let them know ahead of time. Uh, public transit. This is much easier with Google Maps, but the big deal here is like list it very briefly, and especially if you live in the area, check and see whether or not it'll be operating that day. If you're meeting on a Sunday and the bus only runs like Monday through Saturday, 
people will not be super happy. So just give it a check. Um, and then the last thing on this topic I want to say is that if you look at the Google Doc, there is an example of a meetup that occurs in real life doing this thing and like sort of incorporating different things about the venue such that people could use it. Thought it was a great model. Uh, so I've given you a lot of things. Stuff that can go wrong, stuff that can happen, things you could do, places to do it. Um, and so I'll close on this. One of the most useful things you can do is delegate it to just one person. Have just one person in your meetup group or your organization or your conference planning session. Try to figure all of this out. Um, there's a lot of stuff that this can help with. It's really stressful. If everyone in your organization is stressed out about inclusivity, it makes it really hard for everyone to feel positively about doing inclusivity stuff. Um, it helps in terms of practice. If one person is trying to figure out this inclusivity things and they're like figuring out what works and asking other people what works and then trying it and seeing what works and adapting it for the next time, you're actually getting better at it. And this can be way less stressful than trying to figure it out from scratch every single time you do something. And finally, that person will end up building up social capital. If they're able to actually say, I'm so sorry that we messed this one up, but next time we'll do it differently, and everyone can expect that that person will be in charge of next time it happening differently, they'll be more happy about their experience, even if their experience was that they felt left out of the event or the organization or the meetup. Um, and so for that, I really strongly suggest that if you have a large group of people trying to figure out inclusivity things, have some one person who can handle all of that, such that they're the one in charge. And when someone else in the organization is stressed out about inclusivity, they can say, hey, I'm worried about this. Um, that's what I've been doing for the most part for CEA this summer. Um, it's been really great. I unfortunately will be ending my tenure in September when I go back to school. But Julia Wise will be taking over, and Kerry will be talking about that in his movement talk. And finally, I'll be out there for the Q&A. Sometimes people are not super comfortable talking about inclusivity face-to-face. -face. Feel free to shoot me an email there. I will have some EA Global stuff to clear out of my inbox, and I will try to get back to you like within a week after this event ending. Um, and then that's where you can find this uh, sheet with all of my sources there. So I'll see you at the Q&A.